again, everyone, and welcome back to the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and this is episode number 94, as we get one step closer to celebrating 100 episodes of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My guest this week is an award-winning teacher, author, consultant, and nationally known speaker. Very excited to welcome in Rochelle Danae Poth to talk about strategies to develop powerful learning in the classroom. Rochelle is the author of seven books. She's also a regular blogger in the education community, and she was named one of 30 K-12 IT influencers for 2021 as she specializes in ed tech trends, emerging technologies, and the future of learning and work. She's also a podcast host on the BAM Radio Network, and she hosts a weekly Facebook Live event called Thrive in EDU. She has a huge following on Twitter with over 32,000 followers. So you want to jump on Twitter and follow her at rdanae915. She's a wealth of knowledge, folks. Even more impressive is the fact that Rochelle holds a law degree from Duquesne University, and she is truly one of the nicest people that I've ever had the privilege of talking to. So it was a, an honor and a joy to spend some time talking with her about all education this week. And I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. So this was a fun episode, folks. So let's get right to it. My conversation with Rochelle Denae Poth begins right after this quick promo from the Education Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. So excited to bring you another great episode this week as I bring in a classroom teacher, a popular speaker, the author of seven books, and I'm going to go ahead and say she's the hardest working person on Edu Twitter. A big Reimagined Schools welcome to Rochelle Danae Poth. How are you, Rochelle? I'm doing great, Greg, and thank you so much for that introduction. It's great to be here to talk with you today. You know, every morning I open up my Twitter feed and I connect with my PLN and you always bring so much great value uh, to the Twitter space. You do so many amazing things. And I know the number one question you get is, do you ever sleep? So I'm not going to go there, but I do hope your next book is on time management because you seem to have mastered that uh, particular element. Oh, well, it's funny that you said that you weren't going to ask me that question because that is the number one question that I get all the time. I actually had somebody a couple of years ago at the ISTE conference and, you know, those spaces are so crowded and somebody came over to me and they said, Hey, it's you. And I said, wait, me? They said, yeah, Twitter. Like, do you ever sleep? And I went, yeah, I, I do. I do sleep. Uh, but I do have, I don't know about another book. Everybody keeps asking, are you working on, are you writing a book now? Because this is the first time in, I think, three and a half years that I'm technically not working on, a, on writing a book. My, my recent one came out in December, but uh, I have tossed around different ideas of what I could potentially write about. And I don't know that that could be, I could put in some of the hacks I have for getting work done. I'm not definitely not an expert, but as like everybody else, you know, you learn along the way to work smarter, not harder. And so I, I tend to figure things out as I go like, oh yeah, I could have done this 
this way instead. So, but you give me an idea. So I'll have to think about that one. You know, I've been blessed to talk to some amazing people during the five years that I've, I've been podcasting. And um, what's interesting about that, you're a podcaster yourself, so you'll easily be able to relate to this, but everyone has a specialty area. So I'll bring on the school culture guy or the, the lady that's an expert in PBL. But with you, it's a little different. You really kind of cover all the bases from A to Z. You can talk about deeper learning one minute, and then you can go into virtual reality and AI the next. So um, is that by design or do you have a, I know you're a, a tech person, but you have one favorite area that you like to talk and write about? Oh, that, you know, it's, it's hard to really, it's hard for me to pick one thing. Anytime I've ever asked, like, just pick one. It's hard to do that. But there are a lot of things that I like, and I've always really liked technology, even from when I was a kid and we didn't have that much tech, you know, I'm not going to say what decade that happened in, but I've just always been amazed by the capabilities that we have with technology. So for me, it's any time that I learn something new, whether it's a new digital tool that's online available for students, or if it's some new device or gaming system or, or topic. But I would say that the majority of the time when I'm writing or speaking or researching, uh, it does tend to fall on the emerging technologies. So I can, I can group them categorically and kind of avoid picking the AI, AR, VR. But I do a lot of that in my classroom but I'm just fascinated by how much the things have changed and what ways we're seeing these technologies being used in the world, but the impact that it's going to potentially have in education and just for our students. And so, uh, you know, looking at some AR VR, like putting on the Oculus Quest recently and, and doing some Beat Saber, it's been a lot of fun, but the most joy that I get is when I see you know, whatever it is that we're doing in my classroom, whether it's my Spanish classes or my STEAM course, like the student responds to that. And that kind of pushes me to look for more things to bring to them. And so it varies. Um, you know, I'm passionate about that area. I'm also really passionate about learning about social emotional learning and finding different ways for educators to bring that to their classroom, because a lot of the things that I tend to write about and talk about are things that I say like, oh, I didn't really know that much about that. So I should probably work on that. And it's a way for me to continue learning and push myself to continue to grow and also to just keep learning and taking risks and failing. So that was kind of a really long answer around your original question. But so I guess at the end of the day, it, it varies by day, honestly, because sometimes I read an article and I'm like, today we're talking about the metaverse and <laughs> dive right into that. And then sometimes I see a need for building relationships and working with students to help them become more confident. And so then I focus on that. Uh, so it does change, but there is a connection between all of those topics, which I've started to see as well. So it's, uh, it's always exciting, which is why I love going to school every single day. Well, and I think we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways because change is the theme of, of my podcast. Reimagine schools is important to me, how to think differently, not only why we need to change, but how to change. And I know you're, you're big in trying to provide a, a pathway to how to change. But I was talking with some principals here recently uh, about um, the big shift. If you think about the role of the teacher. In my opinion, and I want to get your take on this, of course, but I think the two biggest things to happen in terms of uh, the art of teaching as, as a craft is mm -hmm. when the Internet became widely accessible in schools. And I was actually a high school English teacher in the mid 1990s. And I remember the first time I had access uh, in my classroom to to the Internet. And then, of course, recently we went through COVID. 
So those two things, I think, have had a significant impact, a seismic shift in how teachers plan and prepare. So as you just think about the, the role of the teacher and how that has evolved, you know, what are some talking points or what are some things to think about that we might be able to share as to how teachers need to change their practice in 2022? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring up, you know, the 90s and the way what, what teaching looked like. And for me, when I first started teaching, you know, as a language teacher, you know, I, I have I've been teaching STEAM for, I think about seven years now, but I've always, I've always liked technology. But when I started teaching French first and also then Spanish, I was teaching the way I had been taught because the methods, everything, you know, I just, I mimicked what I experienced and I'm like, it worked for me. It's going to work for my students. And so I was very, I don't want to say resistant to change. I just didn't know that I could change. And I thought it had to be done this way. So I kept doing that for years and years. And then we saw the rise of some technology and like, wow, like check out these games that I can use in my classroom. Um, I, I think that, and especially in the past two years, when many teachers over the years, we know whether in our schools, if we're in, involved in professional development or you go to conferences, sometimes you know that not all teachers want to embrace the technology or even not even technology, a different teaching method because there's time involved. And sometimes there's a huge learning curve that's involved in that, or it's, it's perceived as like, oh, it's just another thing that I have to do because we know teaching's tough. Like it's, it's not a day ends. Okay. We're done. The weekends we're off the summers, forget about anything. It's a continuous learning process. And I think that since, you know, March of 2020, that kind of pushed a lot of people to dive into taking some risks and change things in their classrooms for a couple of reasons. One, you didn't have a choice because you had to find a way to keep learning going. So if you didn't want to use technology, you had to, because that was the only way to connect with students and for them to connect with each other. Two, I think it gave people the push they needed who might've been hesitant because, you know, oh, I, I won't know how to, how to do this, or I don't know if it's going to work, or what if I don't know all the answers? So it gave them that kind of, I don't know, comfort knowing like, yeah, it's okay to take risks in our classroom. Because at this point early on, like, honestly, what do we have to lose? Because anything that we were going to do was going to be better than just not doing anything at all. And that's one thing that I tried to say, you know, that the first part, the last part of that school year was like, this is the time to take some risks. Like you, we've just had the loudest, most annoying wake up call alarm clock. We, we didn't set, but here it is. So dive into something, you know, what is something you've heard about and you haven't tried because you didn't have enough time or you didn't think that you would know all the answers and do that. And so what I've seen in my school and other schools, just listening in you know, to conversations on podcasts or being at conferences, whether in person or virtual, is, is teachers have really started to embrace some of these different methods because they've seen the benefit either because they chose them and they saw the response from students or because schools provided PD and opportunities for teachers to dive into some new methods and technologies and provided that support. So it went from being like, well, I have to do it this way and I have to have so many tests and I have to assign homework and all of these things that like we thought we had to do to being like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have to do that or I thought I had to do that, but I can do this in a different way. And so there has been, at least in my experience, this transformation of what teaching has to be perhaps as a mentality 
to what it needs to be to meet students' needs and interests, but also considering other people involved in that. And uh, I think that was part of the, wasn't necessarily part of the consideration all the time, you know, thinking about like families at home supporting students. Like, you know, it's great to use technology, but if you have three kids that are in three different schools and each teacher is using a number of apps, all of that going home with the students can be overwhelming. And I think everybody involved from the school community members to the students and everybody in between, you know, administrators, tech coaches, if you have them in your school and teachers really took time over the last two years to think about like, what are we doing? What's working? What has not been working? And there've been more conversations that weren't happening because we somehow had a little bit more time to focus on those conversations. At least that's what I think. <laughs> but now we're also busy because we have all these things going on and yeah, but. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, you and I have a mutual friend in Tom Murray who mm-hmm. leads the, uh, the uh, Future Ready Schools movement. Tom and I actually had a, a conversation, several conversations actually before the pandemic. And he was talking about, uh, obviously he goes to a lot of education conferences like you do as well. And before the pandemic, you know, if there was a session on the hottest new apps or the 10 best apps for the social studies classroom, there would be a line around the door. You know, there, there would be people sitting on the floor. You couldn't even get in. But across the hall, there was a session on ISTE standards or changing pedagogy or a different framework for teaching with technology. It would be sparsely attended. And Mm -hmm. so we always kind of had that dialogue as to why that was. Everyone gravitates toward the shiny new tool or whatever the the app of the the week is. Mm -hmm. But I I think you said it well. I think that that mind shift is, is changing a little bit coming out of the pandemic because I'm seeing a hunger, more teachers interested in things like how do I use blended learning? How do I, you know, learn more about hyperdocs or, you know, the modern classrooms project is gaining a lot of momentum around the country with a blended instruction component. Do you see a a shift in how teachers think about, uh, you know, planning and preparation in in their classrooms today, post-pandemic? Yeah. And that's, that's another thing too, that I think is important to remember is like, there is definitely no shortage of digital tools that are out there. And when schools closed back in March of 2020, you know, we all saw so many companies, which was great. Like, here's our tool, here's our product. You can use this for free because, you know, teachers needed something to use. But then what happened is we're using all of these different tools. And I was doing some work uh, last month over a period of a couple of months, actually, and talking with some different tech coaches in different schools and surprised that in some schools, there are more than like 400 apps and platforms and websites being used in that school district by the students and the teachers. And it's like, wow, is all of that really necessary? And then what happens whenever that tech tool disappears? Because we've seen it happen where sometimes you're given notice, like, you know, we're not going to be supporting this six months down the road, you might want to migrate your content. And sometimes it's just gone. And so I think, what I've tried to say at least is, you know, look at methods that you can use and then find the tools to facilitate what those methods are. So, I mean, choice boards and hyperdocs, the first time I did a choice board, I, I just decided I had no idea what I was doing. A lot of the things that I've done in my classroom have just been like, you know what, I'm just going to give this a go and see what happens. So I grabbed a piece of notebook paper and I drew, you know, nine squares and I wrote some different activities in it. In my handwriting, the students came in, they were like, what is this? Like, it's a choice board. Are we playing tic-tac-toe? 
we're not playing tic-tac-toe. And it just had them doing different activities. And I explained to them, like, this is what a choice board is. This is the purpose. And then of course I put that into a digital form, but things like the hyper docs, like I like those options because it puts the choices in the hands of the students and it gives them that opportunity to find some, some way that's interesting to them that might meet their needs in a different way that kind of builds them up in a way that is more, you know, comfortable and confidence building for them. And so with things like choice boards, for example, or even hyperdocs, you know, you still have to give students some instruction because for some students, having so much openness as far as like setting their own path for learning is tough because for years when we've been in school, we've been told this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. This is when it has to be done. And whenever you say, all right, here you go, Greg, here's your choice board. Okay. And that's it. And not, I'm not saying teachers do that, but like you have all these things. And then for some students, they need that structure. They need that support initially. And so using things like that enables teachers to give students that, that chance to engage in, you know, really meaningful learning to set their own kind of schedule. And then of course, I mean, I don't want to dive into social emotional learning, but it helps them with building those skills as well, because they're setting goals for themselves and they're building their awareness about their learning. Uh, but when it comes to digital tools, you know, they can disappear. And so when we look at methods, what methods can we use that thinking five, 10, 15 more years down the road when students are out in the world of work and they have to do something like a project or they have to come up with a way to present something for work, like it's gonna be in their hands. So what are we providing in our schools that are gonna give students the chance to decide where to begin or how to create something or how to work through a challenge. It's those types of experiences that we can use to help students to prepare for the future. And so I love using those. Uh, but like I said, you know, some students will say, can you please just give me some initial goals, which is fine. Sometimes you just have to get them started and say, hey, you know, why, why don't you start here, finish that one, and then pick another one or set a time frame because that is not telling them what to do. It's just giving them a little bit of support as they get started so they build that confidence and comfort so then they can go on their own, which is exactly what they're going to have to be doing in the future, which might mean like two weeks from now, like we don't know how soon they're gonna need those skills. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, when I think about educational technology, um, I really kind of break it down into, into two distinct areas. I think on the one side you have um, tools that are for consumption of information. So something simple like a website, podcast, mm -hmm. YouTube. Uh, I mean, I can learn how to make uh, cupcakes if I want to watch a five minute YouTube video. It's amazing all the information we have at, at our fingertips. And, but then I think the other area is quite frankly on the production side and we, we want kids to be creators. So you can take something as simple as Canva and spend an entire week in your classroom giving them different projects to do. They could make their own newsletters or certificates mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. So I, I think a lot of times teachers are just so overwhelmed. It's kind of that, I call it the, the fire hydrant concept. Trying to drink out of a fire hydrant is what it is for a lot of teachers when they think about what tech tools or what technology they want to use in their classroom. But I, I really think that we need to put kids in a position to be creators and give them an opportunity to create things with technology in their classroom. So just kind of walk me through that a little bit. And what does that process look like in your mind? Yeah, the, you know, years, again, years ago, things that I wish I knew when I was assigning projects for my students, just 
because like, for example, teaching French, I took French in high school. We had to make a menu. We had construction paper. Here's what it is. So that's what I did. And I gave them the outline of, you know, the vocab, whatever the requirements were. And I wanted it to be all the exact same. And then what would happen is I would get some of them that were the exact same, but then I would get some that had like glitter or feathers. And then, you know, I got a glitter and feathers in my car and in my house. And I'm like, you know, I need to give more choices for students to create something. Uh, the other part of it was that in teaching, you know, often, and I don't know how many other educators do this, but for me as a language teacher, I, I felt like I had to spend the whole like 42 minutes just talking at them about the verbs and the vocab, but just using my voice the whole time. And I realized like, I can't be doing that. They need to actually use the language and create on their own. And so that's when I started to make a shift in my classroom. And one of the things I did is I busted up the rows in my classroom and I started to use station rotations. Another thing I had no idea exactly what I was doing. I was just like, whatever we're doing is not working. And in doing that, setting up the different stations, just as one example, you know, it wasn't all technology. Sometimes it was like crayons and markers and paper and tape. And I said, hey, come up with something as a way to practice Spanish. And they had to collaborate and come up with something. Uh, other times it was creating, you know, their own lesson with, I don't know, making a game with one of the game-based learning tools, uh, doing a drawing or something, whatever the content area, I mean, the, the topic was in our content area, I would try to find ways to get them to create more rather than me being the one that was always giving them a worksheet or creating the activity for them. Uh, even a game of Kahoot, for example, I had students who the first time we played that, I guess it was almost eight years ago now, we're like, we need to play this every day. Can you make one every day? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how long is it going to take me to make all of these games? But then I had a student who came in and said, I made a game for us to play. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, I made a game of Kahoot. I said, oh, well, what words did you use? And they said, well, I picked the words that I thought were the most challenging. And it was a good way for me to practice because I typed them in. I typed in the meanings. I associated that. And this was a ninth grade student. And I had never thought about having students create their own game like that. So got me to thinking, need to do this more. And so some of the different tools, now granted, depending on the age of the students that you teach, you know, in project-based learning, I've had students use Nearpod to use as their way to present their information. And so that becomes more interactive. They get to understand technology. They see how it works. They get to be like the teacher and see what the teacher sees on that. Uh, you mentioned using Canva and, and taking a week and having students create, make a newsletter, uh, create a brochure, something, you know, anything. Like there's so many possibilities for doing that, but giving students a chance to create more instead of like with professional development, you know, we often hear the, the sit and get, and that's what students tend to be involved in if they're just sitting there and taking in what their teachers are telling them or what the teachers are providing for them. And so using tools, and you don't have to use all the tools, but we know that there are some that are so versatile that's like, what can't you do with that tool? And so giving students a chance, and sometimes it's choices, which is what I do in my classroom. I'll say, hey, here are five different options and paper projects are totally fine, but I, I need for you to post what you've created on a Padlet or on some other site so that everybody else can see it. And they're like, well, how do I do that? I'm like, you just take a picture and <laughs> just take the picture, post it on there, but you're still helping them to develop skills and they're creating something. And then whenever they have those choices, students can pick. So maybe they want to use Canva. Maybe they want to use Buncee, which is something I use in my classroom. I've had students use Nearpod. I've had students come up with tools that I didn't even know about. So then they're teaching me and their classmates and they're excited about it. 
And so then they're more likely to remember the Spanish that I'm trying to teach them because they are you know, controlling what it is that they're creating. And the best part about it is when they create those things, as the teacher, even if it's something on paper that they did, I've had them draw pictures in, and then just write a description, but whatever they're creating, they're creating for a couple of purposes. One, because like that's their assignment. Two, it's helping them to build their skills. But three, it's something that often as teachers, we can reuse with other students sometime in the future. And when students know that, they're just sort of like, really? You, well, I asked them first, like, is it okay if I show the video you made on conjugating verbs? Or can I use this? And they're like, you really want to use that? I said, yeah, it was great. I mean, you made this and they're like, okay. But they get so excited to know that, you know, they're, they're creating something that has meaning and that you value what they are creating and it's contributing to the learning processes for somebody else too. So I think that makes a huge, huge difference for students and for teachers. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot post pandemic, and you may hear this as well, you probably do, but it, it's not, a lack of will that teachers have if you think about being more innovative in the classroom taking more risk doing different things it's basically what i'm being told is there just aren't enough models out there to follow uh, you know teachers ask me all the time well where do i go to learn more about how to set up a pbl classroom or how where do i go to figure out how to start with blended learning the information is out there you may have to look for it a little bit, you know, you know it's on podcasts, on websites, right. uh, different videos, but do you feel like, I, I don't, it's, I'm not sure how to ask the question, but do we as an education community not do a good enough job of providing those models? Is it, too, is it like an Easter egg hunt where people are just kind of on their own and they have to go find it? Or do you think that's getting better as we try to streamline, you know, what uh, future ready schools should look like? Yeah, great question, because it is, there is a lot of information out there and knowing where to begin. And I think the, the one, the best way to start is to just make sure that you, you are a connected educator in whatever area that works for you. And some people might say, oh, I don't want to be on Twitter or, you know, I'm not really into Facebook, but there are enough communities out there that there's something for everybody. I mean, I'm amazed. I was somebody who never wanted to use social media. I'm like, I don't need a Twitter account, don't need Facebook. And now I have all of those. But over the past six or seven years, even being connected in ISTE and having access to other educators who are posting questions about like, I wanna get started with project-based learning. And you don't have to go on this massive scavenger hunt to find things because there are people out there in those networks that are ready to dive in and help you. You just need to make sure that you put yourself into at least one of them so you can ask those questions. Uh, for some of those, you know, project-based learning, you know, I, I can name a lot of people blended learning, you know, Catlin Tucker was station rotations too. Even I was a guest on her podcast. And I said to her, I really wish I would have read your book before I started doing that because I just dove into it. But sometimes the best way, honestly, is to just like learn a little bit about it and involve your students with it. And which is what I did with PBL. I said, okay, I studied the, the information about PBL, what it was, because I thought I was doing PBL and found out, nope, we were doing learning based on projects, totally different. And I explained it to them and we dove into that process together and took the risk and worked through it and reflected on it. But for other educators, you know, looking on Twitter, for example, if you're already on Twitter, 
look at the hashtags, put a question out there. If you're in an, the ISTE community or one of the state affiliates of ISTE, or there's plenty of other educator networks out there, they have discussion forums most of the time. You just have to ask because the one thing that I've learned is, you know, educators are so willing to share. And that's for me, I always say, I'm like, if I can make your life easier, because you, you mentioned earlier about sleeping, like I love to learn. I love to find resources. And if I can find something that I know will help somebody else, like I just want to keep looking for those things. So you just have to kind of reach out into your network and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing PBL. Is anybody doing this? Or can somebody recommend a resource for creating choice boards or hyperdocs, for example? Uh, I think educators have definitely gotten better at that, especially in the past two years, because we lost being in that physical space and we rely being in the digital space. And then there were all these opportunities to connect and learn. And, and I think people finally, uh, for some people finally saw the value in being connected on social media networks and in those spaces, because you were part of the community whenever we weren't able to be part of like the regular in-person community. So it made a difference. And, you know, I think the, the PBL conversation is a good one because uh, I've had uh, several conversations with, uh, you know, Bob Lenz over at PBL Works and different people that have done some great things with PBL. But you brought up a great point. There are a lot of teachers out there that are doing a project who think they're doing PBL, but it, it's really it's really not. So just to provide some clarification in your mind as what the difference is between doing a, an end of unit project and actually doing full blown PBL. Yeah, so um, it's, it's kind of it's almost embarrassing uh, when I talk about it, just because years ago somebody had asked me to write a blog post about. Well, they said, "Are are you doing PBL?" And I said, "Yeah." And I I thought it was kind of an odd question because I I said, "Is it everybody?" And so I was asked to write a blog post about project based learning, which I did. And then flash forward about three years later, uh, Dave Burgess had. Um, recommended, I was looking at some new books and I think I had Play Like a Pirate and the book Launch by AJ Giuliani and John Spencer. And I was, I was talking to Dave and, and he said, oh, you're going to love this book Launch because it goes, talks about, you know, project-based learning and, and just this launch process. So I remember reading in that book and there was a quote that said, if you assign a project and you get back 30, the same thing, it's not a project, it's a recipe. And then I also had the opportunity to talk with Don Wetrick that summer, the author of Pure Genius. And between those two experiences, I went, oh my gosh, I have not been doing project-based learning. I've been doing projects. And so I looked at, and you mentioned Bob Blends, I looked at at the time Buck, Buck Institute, now PBL Works, and went down this list. And I thought, oh, I've been doing this very linear process of projects where here's our unit, here's the information, here's some assessments mixed in. Okay, at the end, we're going to do a project, put it all together, then we move on to the next theme. Whereas whenever you're doing project-based learning, it's this, the, the goal is this sustained inquiry. And so it's not a very linear kind of unit with like this culminating end project that you do. It has a, an essential question or some driving question that students have, or maybe that teachers come up with for their class, because it could be a full class PBL versus an individual student. And so it's, you know, what is something that you want to know? Okay, so then you have these different learning activities built in. Maybe if the teacher's leading it, you provide some resources and then the students kind of have a check-in point or they're creating something and they reflect along the way and then they share this public product. And I didn't, you know, go into, too into detail on that. But in my classroom, when we did this, 
the first time I have my students write down these, you know, essential elements of project-based learning. And I explained to them how it was different. And I had them pick, because they were juniors and seniors, pick their own topic. And the first, the goal point was, okay, you're going to have one day a week where this is your PBL day. And of course they picked Friday because why, why not? And I said, the difference is I'm not going to come around and hover over you and say like, are you doing the research for your project? And what are you working on? I said, we're going to have check-ins, but I'm going to leave this up to you because that's the goal is like, what are you most interested in? And then after that first nine week period, students then did some presentation. And the, the biggest question they had was, well, what do I create? What do I have to present? I said, whatever you want, but I need to know. I'm like, well, I, I don't know where what you're studying and looking up is going to lead you, nor do you. I said, and I always make the same analogy. I say, imagine going into Target or a card shop and you see the perfect gift bag or box. You're like, oh my gosh, I love this. I buy it. And then you go buy the gift for somebody that doesn't fit into that, <laughs> that perfect packaging that you bought. I said, you can't think about the end you have to just go through and see. And I said, trust me. And I didn't know if I was right or not, but I said, trust me, as you work through whatever you're learning, you'll figure out the way that you want to share that information with somebody. And so after that first round, you know, there were students that actually did PBL. They stood in the front, they talked, they had maybe a slide. They might've even just talked about it. They weren't reading from a script. They didn't have any note cards and they were so excited about it. Then you had students who just talked about something that were reading their presentation and they didn't seem very excited about it. And I had them do some feedback and peer assessment or peer review, um, peer assessment. And you know they could tell just after that first round, like, yeah, I did a project, it wasn't PBL. And I said, okay, well, you know, what would make it different? And so it, it was an ongoing, I mean, three, four years now, and we've been working on it and tweaking it each time, but I've never seen such powerful learning happen in my classroom that was student-led. And I told them like all of the information and things that you've shared, there's no way that I could have provided that for you because, and we use some different tools to set up and I had them connect with students in Argentina and Spain. And one of the students said like, I have, I have never been able to learn in a way like this, where I could ask a student in Argentina, what's it like to go to school? What are some of the challenges that teenagers deal with? And to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations in a space that was safe and comfortable and to build that into what they were interested in learning. And then we then later build it on to um, the sustainable development goals and students were very passionate about that as well. So it became, you know, in my mind in the beginning, I just wanted to get away from the projects and do the PBL, but then it just kept adding more and more to it. And it has been such an amazing experience. And one which even if like two years ago, we are not in school, you can keep the PBL going. It's not reliant on a specific digital tool. It's just inquiry and it's interest, you know, based on students or if it's led by teacher and it can be done at any level. And, and you know, I often tell people if, if I could go back in time, when PBL was first introduced to the education community, I would get rid of the word project and replace it with problem. Because mm -hmm. in reality, it's problem-based learning. So, you know, kids, we need to teach kids, number one, how to define what a problem is. And then we can move into solutions and how to go about that process. But I, I, that's something right. you talk about as well, because we have to teach kids how to solve uh, wicked problems, as, as you often hear people say. Yeah, and that was something that was uh, was part of what my students had done too, because initially they did this, you know, individually, they chose something 
And then after that, I give them a choice. I said, you know, maybe you heard somebody else speak about something that now you're interested in. You want to collaborate with them on something. And I did have some that found problems to address and they looked at the sustainable development goals and they looked in Spanish speaking countries to find something and they came up with solutions that they presented to these problems. And, you know, what a, like, you know, of course a real world learning experience, but one that, yes, they're learning Spanish. They're learning about, you know, different experiences and they're developing global awareness, but it's helping them to build so many other skills that are applicable to everyday life, but of course that'll prepare them for the future. Well, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. I could talk with you all day about this kind of stuff. Uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. And as we close, uh, just tell folks where they can find you on Twitter. And if they want to bring you in to speak or maybe do consulting work, where can they find you? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. I could also speak with you all afternoon about a lot of these different things. And for anybody that wants to connect with me, I'd love to connect, uh, pretty consistent. So Twitter, it's R-D-E-N-E-915, uh, same on Instagram. Uh, if you add the Gmail to that rdene 915 you can send me an email. And if you put the www and the .com around it, you can get to my blog site as well. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I have a community in my own space and also my uh, community Thrive in EDU on Facebook. And I am really good at getting back to people. So feel free to send me a message, ask a question, share a resource, connect. I would love to you know, continue to build my network. And yeah, definitely, if anybody would like to have conversations or have me speak, I always welcome those opportunities as well, because I just love to share what we're doing in my classroom. So thank you again. Well, happy Easter and have a great summer and safe travels. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Once again, a big thank you goes out to Rochelle Danae Poth. Be sure to follow her on all the social media platforms and consider buying one of her seven books and adding those to your professional library. She's a wonderful educator who offers so many great ideas on how to improve your practice as a classroom teacher. As always, folks, I hope you can like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star rating, and leave a comment to help even more educators find the podcast as we continue the conversation on how to reimagine schools. So thanks for listening, folks. And until next time, keep fighting for change in your school.